Good evening, everyone. Welcome. Uh, it's absolutely fantastic to have you here tonight. My name's Stuart Starr. I'm the lead pastor here at New Life Anglican Church, and uh, I think we're in for a great night. I'm really, uh, really looking forward to it. So thanks for making the effort to be here. Uh, if you need to use the facilities at any point, a bit of a housekeeping notice to start. Um, our toilets are around the corner there uh, behind our parents' room. Uh, there are some parents in our parents' room. Hi, guys. Good to see you. Uh, if you have a little one here who becomes unsettled at any point through or you need to let off some steam, you can also go into that room and uh, we won't be able to hear you and you'll be able to hear what's going on in here, which is fantastic. Uh, I'm going to introduce our speaker for tonight, uh, Dr. Luke Barnes. Uh, he's a postdoctoral researcher. I love reading this out. He's a postdoctoral researcher at the Sydney Institute for Astronomy in the University of Sydney. His university medal from that same university helped him to earn a scholarship to complete a PhD at the University of Cambridge. He has published papers in the field of galaxy formation and on the fine-tuning of the universe for life. He's also married, a father of two, a member of our leadership team here at New Life and a pretty dab hand with the bat and ball in indoor cricket. Important to note, I would think, Luke. Uh, more recently, and perhaps more important for our purposes tonight, you'll no doubt be aware that uh, Dr Barnes has co-authored a book called A Fortunate Universe. And wonderfully for all of us here tonight, uh, it's actually on sale afterwards, is that right? Luke? So I can do the gross commercialisation stuff and you can stick to the science. Excellent. So that'll be uh, on sale in the foyer um, after, the, um, after the session tonight. And mine is on my iPad and I'm enjoying it, if I can make that recommendation to you. Uh, he co-authored this book with uh, Dr. Garrett Lewis, um, and it's concerning the fine-tuning of the universe for life. He's just returned from a 17-stop, was it 17-stop, Luke? 17-talk tour of the US. I just like throwing that in because it makes you feel more important tonight. He's back from an exclusive tour of the US uh, to speak with us tonight, and he's here without one shred of jet lag, I'm sure. So tonight I think we're in for a treat. Uh, from baking a cake to sitting on a beach, uh, Dr. Barnes will take us on an entirely accessible journey, that's what I'm saying anyway, accessible journey into this area of uh, scientific inquiry as we ponder why in an almost infinite sea of possibilities was our universe born with the conditions that allow life to arise. Just before he speaks, I want to encourage you, we're going to have a question and answer time after, um, which should be really enjoyable. Uh, can I encourage you, uh, when that comes about, I'll have a microphone with me, I'll come and find people who've got their hands up, and I'll encourage questions, not statements. Is that all right? Does everyone understand what that means? And everyone's heard me before this, one of those awkward moments, is that right? So when I say thank you for your statement and go to the next hand, you'll understand what I'm doing. That's great, excellent, fantastic. Well, without further ado, I'd love you to welcome up Dr. Luke Barnes. Thanks, Drew. All right, well, thank you very much for coming out. It's great to be back in Australia, great to be back in a country that can pronounce my surname. Uh, is, it, is it Barnes? No. Uh, so, uh, if we can kill the lights at the front, uh, that would be great. So, um, yeah, thank you very much for coming out. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. It's always fun being introduced in that way by Stuart because uh, it be gets a bit easier to spot the people who were dragged along here tonight without quite knowing what this was. Sorry, what was that? He's an astrophysicist. Uh, come on, this was supposed to be date night. But, okay. Um, no, it's going to be okay. 
I mean, you might think, well, we're in a church, I can't get too sciencey. Think again. But it's going to be all right because I'm an astronomer and so I can do this. Those lights haven't gone off, Steve, by the way. That's all right, we're good. Steve is the guru. No? Nothing? Never mind. We can all see that. No one has ever has to talk you into being an astronomer. And when you tell people that you're an astronomer, they, there's an interesting set of uh, responses that you get. One of them is, oh, I'm a Capricorn. Those people can sort off. Uh, but every now and then you get someone who has to tell you this story about their life, about some important point in their life, and it always gets to the point where, and the, the line in the story is, and then I looked up at the stars, right? There was a, a guy who was, in the, it was a, it was in the submarine crew of the British Navy, and they were tracking Russian submarines through the, you know, the Arctic seas, and they couldn't do anything at night because you have to be quiet, and so they'd just drink beer up on the surface of the sub as it was on the top, and then I looked up at the stars, and they just have to tell you this story about how beautiful the universe is which is why no one ever talks you into being an astronomer, because of course you want to look at the stars, they look like that. The wonderful thing about the night sky is the harder you look, the more beautiful it is. Like, like any great piece of art, the harder you look, the more you consider it, the better it looks. So if you build a great big telescope, you can see more about the details of the universe. So we can see part of the story that's unfolding there. We see stars in which gas and dust is getting dense enough to begin to form stars. We see places where those stars are undergoing a change. So this is something actually quite mundane in the universe. Stars run on a certain fuel, and when they run out of that fuel, they have to sort of change their structure a bit and throw off some outer layers in order to light the next thing. So a star undergoing a fuel change looks like that. It's called a planetary nebula. We can see when larger stars blow up and the remnants of that across the night sky. And we can even look back, sort of stand back on the big picture of, our, of galaxies like the one that we're in. Every time we build a great big telescope, we're not entirely sure what we'll see. That's one of the great things about building a great big telescope. But it's always been more beauty. If you're a complete nerd like myself, and you enjoy mathematics, there's even more beauty up there. Because underlying all of this is the mathematical beauty. We can understand the structure of the universe in terms of its basic parts. So let me give you a very basic introduction to this. We can go to the chalkboard and understand the basic bits that we're made out of. There's the very large scale. We can go to the small scale. The stuff that we're familiar with is made out of atoms. Atoms coming together and joining, we can understand even those atoms in terms of even smaller particles. We can understand how those particles interact with each other via certain forces. There are two particles exchanging a uh, particle between them, and so pushing and pulling on each other. And we can understand space and time themselves, and gravity in terms of the way that space and time warps and twists and changes. That is why Einstein is famous because it wasn't easy to explain how that works. So let me give you a basic introduction here as to how all of that basic stuff connects with life as we know it. This is obviously going to be a very quick tour, but by the end of it, you'll basically be particle physicists, so stay on board for this, you'll be fine. If you're a particle physicist, part of your job is to take a 
the basic, most basic pieces of the universe we have and to smash them together to see if they break into even smaller bits. Once we've done that, for a while, we can collect the smallest bits that we know into one master slide, which is called the standard model of particle physics. So here it is. Right, after this you'll all be particle physicists. Let me go this side. So, here's the short story. If you're thinking like the Lego set of the universe, over this side there are the bricks, and over this side there are connectors. This is the stuff, and this is the stuff that holds the stuff together. All right, good. Those are the quarks. You might want to remember that. It'll probably come up in a trivia exam quiz at some point. Uh, and these are called the leptons, and these are called the gauge bosons. Right? Good. We're all on board. Fantastic. Here's the most important three, the stuff that you're made out of. The up quark, the down quark, and the electron, which you are hopefully familiar with from high school. So, here's what we can make out of those. Those are the basic Lego bits. Let's see what this kit can do. So, the first thing we can do is we can take the up quark and the down quark and the electron and combine them into the proton and the neutron, which you may have heard of. Hopefully you have heard of from high school. All right? If, if it comes up in that trivia exam, then good luck. It's two ups and a down makes a proton and uh, two downs and an up makes a neutron. What can we do with those? All right, let's make the next thing out of our Lego set. We can put protons and neutrons together into the nuclei of atoms. So they will stick to each other into a very dense bit. This is not to scale. It's actually going to be tiny on this kind of scale. We can stick protons and neutrons together, and we can do this in a number of different ways. Each different way we can do this corresponds to a different element. There's the periodic table. Sorry if I'm giving you high school flashbacks at this point. But all of those are just how many protons did you stick in the nucleus. So there's hydrogen with one, helium with two, lithium with three, and so on and so forth. Right? One of the things that's also quite important here is the electrons stay in a nice orbit around the outside. So if we bring two atoms together, the electron, instead of just going around one nucleus, can take a complicated path around the whole thing, binding it together, and that's how you make chemicals. So congratulations, you're now chemists as well. That's how chemistry works. A little bit more to it, but never mind. Our universe is pretty good at this, okay? That is DNA, all right? You take hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, carbon, and phosphorus, you put it in this particular order, you let the electrons do their thing, winding their way through it and holding it together, and you can literally write the instructions for life as we know it. That's rather impressive. It's literally instructions. These are the chemical letters, right? We call them C, T, A, and G after their names. But depending on which one you put in the middle there, it tells you a particular sequence. That sequence codes what's called a protein. When your cell wants to do this, it rips the, a bit of the DNA in two, plants sort of a blank slate, roughly, on, on one of the sides and makes itself a protein out of part of your DNA. So if you put enough of those together, you can make cells. Uh, now you have to ask a biologist for all the details here, but cells are incredibly complicated. And if you put enough cells together, you can make munchkins. <laughs> so, in summary, with some assembly required, you can turn up and down quarks and electrons into munchkins. Now, it's slightly more complicated than I've given uh, you the idea there, better methods are available, but that's basically how it works. We can take the Lego set of our universe and make some pretty impressive stuff. 
stuff that can eat an ice cream. When we under, try to understand that as physicists, we start boiling things down to a nice and nice, lovely sets of equations. Now, that might be a sentence you've never heard before, but if you're a complete nerd, then some equations really are quite lovely. For example, if we try to understand gravity, here's how it works if you're following Newton. Suppose you have two, I don't know, planets, maybe? Okay, and you want to know, thanks to the force of gravity, how strongly do they attract each other? And what Newton taught us was that we can write this down in the form of an equation. Right? If you're squeamish, close your eyes. I'll tell you when you can open your eyes and the equation will be gone. But basically, here's what's going. You know how heavy this thing is and how heavy that thing is and the distance between them. And then you take the one mass, you times it by the other mass, you divide by the, the distance between them squared. And then there's one more factor, g. This is called one of the fundamental constants of nature. Now what sucks us right in as physicists is this equation explains an awful lot. If you take this and try to understand the solar system, it'll work. You can understand why everything goes around, pretty much. There's a very small change uh, for Mercury, but that's why we think Einstein was right and Newton was almost right. We can explain a lot with that, so we really want to sort of finish the job and know where this G came from, but that's the problem. We don't. And as well as G, there's a whole heap of other numbers. We can measure it, of course, that's not the problem, right? There it is, if you're really interested, 6.67 times 10 to the minus 11 in uh, SI units. Great to be back here using metric. <laughs> you're a good crowd. Okay, there's, there's G, but there's, a whole, there's other ones. There's the speed of light, which is famously a constant, um, about 300,000 kilometers a second. There's uh, the mass of an electron, just how heavy uh, is that bit of Lego? How much charge does it have? We're all familiar with charges through electricity and static electricity. Uh, how much charge does an electron have? H is to do with something called quantum mechanics, and it's the very basic thing that tells us where the rules change, where the universe gets weird and quantum. There's a number that tells us how strong electromagnetism is, known as the fine structure constant. And there's a similar constant for what's called the, the weak force, which involves those leptons. Richard Feynman was one of the great physicists of the last century. He said all good physicists put this number, he was talking about fine, fine structure constant, but it applies to all of them, put this number up on their wall and worry about it. Immediately you would like to know where this number comes from. Nobody knows. It's one of the greatest mysteries of physics, a magic number that comes to us with no understanding. So if you're a physicist, you would like to know why that number is what it is. Why is the electron that heavy and not heavier or lighter? So what we can do as a way of attacking that problem is simply to ask, what if it were different? We can take our equations, put in different numbers, and see what comes out. We can play what-if games. So for example, we can ask, what if gravity were stronger? What if the electron were more massive? What if atoms were more stable or less stable? You might think that more stable is a good thing, but our, this, the actually radioactivity in the center of the Earth powers plate tectonics, right? It keeps the center of the Earth hot, so there's, it's molten, so the continents can move around. That's actually quite important if you want things, uh, if, if, if volcanoes give you, uh, as, as is true in a lot of places, quite healthy soil. Actually, there's less, 
more stable atoms aren't necessarily good. What if there were different dimensions of time and space? We can take our equations and just for fun, depending on your idea of fun, throw in a few extra equations of space or of time. Just what kind of universe could there have been? And because we're doing it, we'd like to know whether there would be life. So let me start messing around. So one of the things we can do is mess around with just the question, how heavy are those Lego blocks? Right, the basic stuff, up quarks, down quarks, electrons. You remember the structure of atoms, okay? These are quite important because you're made of them. Hopefully that's not news to you. What, you might think that if I make all the, bit, the Lego blocks a bit heavier, all I'll do is make all the stuff in the universe a bit heavier. That's not quite the way it works. The reason is because energy is the currency of the universe. If you want something to happen, you better be able to pay for it in energy. If you don't have enough energy, you won't be able to pay for it and nothing will happen. Einstein taught us, most famous equation, E equals mc squared. So mass is a form of energy, so it now comes into the bargain. One of the ways to make something stable in this analogy is to make it broke. If you would like your DNA to keep on holding the same information it did yesterday, which is probably a good idea, you would like it to be the case that it can't afford to change anything. That's useful. So when we mess with these fundamental masses, we can change the way the universe does these transactions, things that couldn't happen before, the universe can now can afford, and vice versa. In fact, it's quite straightforward, through fairly small changes to these constants, to make it the case that protons and neutrons don't stick to each other. Actually, it's quite easy to make it even worse. We can make it so that electron doesn't go around the outside, it spirals into the center, hits the proton, turning it into a neutron. This is probably quite bad news. Here's the reason why. Here's the periodic table again. Hopefully you remember this from high school. This is the astronomer's version of the periodic table, by the way. It's colored according to where in the universe these elements came from. So the ones that are just left over from the very early universe are in purple. Uh, cosmic rays make those two, L3. And then the yellow ones are made in small stars. You need some big burning stars to make the larger ones. And then the rest of these ones, including some quite famous ones like gold, AU, you need a star to blow up before you can actually make that one, before anywhere in the universe gets hot enough to smash enough things together that you make gold. So this was made in a star, blowing up. If we change these constants a little bit, these masses a little bit, we can have a universe in which the periodic table looks like this. If protons and neutrons don't stick, that's all you get. And what chemical, chemical reactions, what chemicals could we form out of this? Well, we can make what's called the hydrogen molecule. We can stick two hydrogen atoms together, and that's basically the end of chemistry. Okay? Let me put this in a form that was quite useful for the students that I talked to in the, U, in the US. In that universe, the chemistry exam goes like this. Question one, what is the element? Hydrogen. Question two, what is the chemical reaction? Uh, hydrogen plus hydrogen makes the hydrogen molecule. End of exam. Right? That's it, that's all chemistry does. 
There are ways of doing it even worse than that. You can give it the chemistry of helium, which isn't much chemistry at all. The chemistry exam then goes, question one, what is the element helium? End of exam, there are no chemical reactions, right? If, if you look it up in our universe, you can go online, and if you're a complete masochist, look up the ChemSpider database, where there are 50 million known chemical compounds in our universe. This universe has one. It is a huge shame that no one will be around to take that very easy chemistry test. Because that whole process that I showed, right? Here's the Lego set, let's put it together, we'll make atoms, nuclei, chemicals, molecules, uh, chemicals and molecules, uh, you know, proteins, cells, people, all that stops pretty early, right? You have the basic particles, you make protons, end of story. Nothing more interesting happens. This is what's called the fine-tuning of the universe for life. Our universe does some pretty amazing things, but some very small changes to the properties of the universe render it completely uh, impossible, impossible to do anything. We can apply this on an even larger scale. One of the things that I do for a living, which is a minor miracle, uh, is we take, uh, a, inside a computer, we take pieces of, of uh, the universe and code them up to be small particles, small particles, right, they're quite big actually. Uh, we then take a whole heap of those and spread them out across a region of the universe. We teach them to interact via gravity, they will attract each other when they're close, they will push against each other via pressure, they will glow when they're very hot, they will form stars when they're very dense, and those stars will blow up when they reach the end of their lives if they're very big. And we can do all of this within an expanding universe. We put this on a supercomputer with about 5,000 computers, for, uh, individual cores for about a month and a half. We hope that nothing happens to the computer in that time. And then we make a pretty movie at the end. So here's what happens. We start our universe off as we know our universe starts, very smooth. And the short story here is that the rich get richer. If there's any bit of the universe which is more dense than average, right, it will have a stronger gravitational pull on everything around it. And so it will get even more dense than average. So if you have a great big blob of stuff, it will become an even bigger blob of stuff, and our universe forms structure in this way. So. You might also be able to see here in the very densest parts of the universe where these filaments intersect is where galaxies form and you might even be able to see uh, stuff being blown out by supernovae. That's basically how we think the universe got its galaxies. What we can do is... Uh, wait for this thing to finish. Yep, good. The final structure, this is called the cosmic web for fairly obvious reasons. You get this filamentary structure of things falling into the densest knots where galaxies and clusters of galaxies form. We can change the rules. If there was too little gravity, then this process would fail. Things would not grab onto the stuff around them and the universe would simply fail to form structure. You would have a universe in which matter just wandered around and nothing else much happened. We can also look at stars. Stars depend on gravity, of course. It's a nuclear bomb, nuclear fusion bomb, being held together by gravity. What's basically going on in the center of a star is that gravity is pushing in, and the force of heat, the pressure from heat, is pushing out, and those are forming a nice little stable uh, equilibrium there. 
What happens if you turn up gravity too much is the star starts to pulse. If there's a slight overbalance, it overcorrects itself. The star gets a bit, uh, a bit iffy, it overreacts to things and will eventually throw off its outer layers. So if we make gravity too strong, then unfortunately stars won't form in the universe. Anything big enough to burn is unfortunately big enough to break itself apart. We can also look at the entire history of the universe and do the same sort of game. What happens if we change the rules? Right? About 20 years ago, maybe a bit more, Geraint likes to tell the story, uh, how was the what did the history of the universe look like? We know that there was a Big Bang, and it might be the case that off into the future things recollapsed, or things were slowed down, but have, didn't recollapse, or things just coasted off, not really slowing down at all. The universe, it turns out, has a sense of humour, so it's in fact none of the above. This is what the universe is actually doing, it's accelerating for some reason, that we don't really understand. One of the things we can do is try to work out what could do that, what could make the acceleration of the universe, uh, the expansion of the universe accelerate, right? The galaxy out there is not only moving away from us, it's moving away faster today than it was yesterday. So, one of the ideas is perhaps there's some sort of energy associated with these sort of weird quantum fields in space-time. Right? Sentence that sounds like it comes from Doctor Who. Um, Space is filled with these uh, fields. We think they are what explain where these particles come from. And what we can do, after a bit of maths, I'll spare you the detail, is work out how big, how much we would expect, how much energy we would expect in a given bit of space if this were correct. The problem is that our theory of this dark energy uh, mismatches observations by a huge factor. That's 120 zeros. So we can ask, okay, we can at least understand what would happen if things were that large. We play our game again. What if we changed the rules? And actually, unless you're in a very small region of that total set of possibilities, either from the Big Bang the universe recollapses in about a second into a big crunch, or from the Big Bang the universe expands too fast and you basically get that no-gravity universe where the only thing that will happen is that a lonely proton will just be the stuck there in the middle of space. And rather than all the interesting stuff that happens in our universe, the only thing that really happens is another proton might come by and bounce off it. Right? It's a very boring universe. You can write a book called The Lonely Proton about that universe. Not much happens at all. So, there are some entertaining ways you can ruin a universe. If anyone out there is thinking of a career as a supervillain. I've given you some really great ideas there about how to totally destroy uh, life as we know it. And you can get about six chapters worth of this in the book. There are some really great ways to totally screw things up. Um, my co-author is Geraint. He's a professor at the University of Sydney. Uh, he was my master's supervisor. He went to Cambridge as well. And uh, he wrote the first seven chapters of the book we wrote together. Uh, I should tell you that Geraint is an atheist. So the last chapter is where things got interesting. Chapter 8 is where we disagreed. It takes the form of a conversation. Uh, he's not here, I can't do all of his side. But here is what Geraint thinks all of this means. Geraint thinks we won the cosmic lottery. Basically, 
it's very unlikely if you just pump out some random universe that it's going to have all the stuff it needs to make all of those things to make life. It'll probably be one of the, be one of the dead, dead ones where stuff doesn't stick together, stuff expands too fast, stars blow up, all of that nonsense. But if there are enough other universes out there, like enough other tickets in the lottery that people actually bought, then somewhere a life-permitting universe will turn up. And everywhere where there's someone scratching their head about their universe, it'll, that'll only ever happen in a universe which got the conditions right to make life in the first place. This idea is called the multiverse, which for some reason turned up in comic books. That's Infinite Crisis Fight for the Multiverse. Uh, there's a very unfortunate shortage in the scientific literature on the multiverse of uh, Batman. But he's, he's about to punch someone, and that's going to help the multiverse somehow. Um, so this idea is out and about. It sort of got out of the scientific literature and is now uh, heading through whatever comics those are. DC, isn't it? Yeah. I don't really follow comics because I'm not a character in the Big Bang Theory. Um, why would we think that... The, why would we take this idea seriously? Well, there are some ideas about the very early universe that would explain some things we see about the universe around us. Our universe is, um, has certain properties that if in the very earliest stages of our universe, if there was a very rapid expansion, what's called cosmic inflation, that would explain some stuff about what we see. And it's been argued that if that happened, you would get this kind of bubble structure. Our universe would be one of these bubbles, but if we could zoom right back, we'd see this sort of multiverse structure, lots of different other universes out there. So, pictorially, uh, the universe as a whole would look a bit like this. There'd be, for every universe like ours, which does a whole heap of interesting stuff, there would be an awful lot of other universes that don't do a whole heap of interesting stuff. Geraint was very proud of this movie, he made it. He designed the front cover of the book, so I'll let you enjoy this. Um, that's the picture of the multiverse. Because of the fine-tuning, most of these universes will be dead, right? Even if in some of these, you know, chemicals could form, but it expands too fast, so they don't actually form. In these ones, it expands just right, but maybe uh, nothing will stick to anything else, and it's just ours and a couple of other isolated spots in between where something interesting actually happens. That's one idea. Even if that were true, we might still think that there's something to be explained because now you've got to wonder why there's a life-permitting multiverse rather than just a life-permitting universe. Obviously, one of the reasons why this whole topic is pretty interesting to a lot of people is because it suggests the existence of a fine-tuner. The way I like to think about this is in terms of a, a, uh, a set of chess pieces who are on the board trying to work out the rules of chess. So they watch their universe around them and they do their own little physics, trying to think what rules will explain the way everything moves around the board. So one of them in, uh, works out that bishops always move diagonally. If they keep watching even longer, they'll see some of those rarer moves like castling. And there may come a day where one very, you know, uh, you know, their little Einstein actually writes down the rules of chess. There will be some day when a chess piece will actually look at the rules of chess and will know basically everything about why things move that way around them at some level. Because it might occur to him to ask a higher order question of those rules, like, why aren't we playing checkers? Of all the ways that you could move pieces around the board, 
why do we see a way that makes for an interesting game? You can write down the rules of chess on a single sheet of paper, but the strategy of chess takes textbooks and textbooks and lifetimes of learning. It's a bit like our universe. I can put all its pieces on one board for you, and the equations don't take up too much room, but actually solving them, the universe itself is a very complicated place, an interesting place that can do interesting stuff like this. These chess pieces might get a thought. Maybe our rules aren't the ultimate ex explanation. Maybe there's something above that. Maybe someone designed these rules in order to make an interesting universe. They would, of course, be right, but it would explain something about their universe in a very specific way. One thing that a good explanation will do is to cut down a huge set of possibilities to pick out one that's right. So what that explanation will do for the chess pieces is say, here's a whole heap of ways that games could have been, and the interesting ones seem to be a small subset, so if that's true, then it explains why our universe is interesting. Right? If you need a sort of pictorial representation of this property of good explanations, here's one from uh, our childhood. Okay, remember guess who? Some, you get a player, the other person gets a player, and you have to ask questions and try to work out who they picked. A good question is one that flips down a whole heap of possibilities when you get it right. That's something that a good explanation will do. There's a whole heap of ways that the thing could have been, but it will tell you something specific about it. We could imagine being in the same situation as the chess pieces. At some point in some future meeting of the really important physicist society, Einstein's great-great-great-great-great-great-granddaughter, Alberta, walks up to the board, takes her time, writes down an equation, and physics is over. Right? I like to imagine the comedian who joked that at this point it would be great if, her, if all of our reality just dissolved and a sign came up that just said, level two. Right? Staring at that board, we would know why the natural world does what it does, right? Just as the chess pieces would know why those pieces moved in a certain way they do. But we might still have, and I think we almost certainly will still have, the kind of questions that fine-tuning has raised. Why these laws rather than some other set of laws? And in particular, of all the ways we found that the universe could have been, that we've been able to check so far, the vast majority of them are dead. So if we think that our universe is the creation of a good creator, we can really get somewhere. Because out of a huge set of possibilities, there's a very small set that will actually do something that is morally worthy. Like make people who can talk and learn and love. If you think that that's the way the universe turned out to be, then out of all the other possible ways the universe could have been, you'll have an explanation for why this way, why this type of way, why does our universe, the kind of place where we can do this sort of thing, where moral actions are meaningful, because someone thought it through. Maybe that idea strikes you, maybe it doesn't. But there is at least, I think, here a very clear way of thinking about science as it relates to theism. Let me give an example of what I mean by this. If you look at the history of physics, there's really only two names that vie for the position of the greatest. Right? You've all heard of Einstein, I assume, and the other one is Isaac Newton. His greatest achievement was this. 
It's called the Principia. It's, don't bother trying to read it, it's in Latin. In it, he sets out his basic principles of how stuff moves in the universe. And if you go to university today to study physics, you turn up in first year, you walk into that classroom, they will basically start here. Newton showed us how to do it. This is just a, a touchstone in the history of physics. Okay? This is a picture of a first edition. Right? There were only 250 made. And so this is a really, really rare thing. And in fact, this one's even more rare than usual. Because if we turn over the page, that's Newton's handwriting. Right? He's made a little note there about the difference between how he views things and how Kepler views things, if you're interested. But that's the hand of the man himself. We can see his handwriting putting something next to the text. Now, that's pretty cool and pretty interesting. And I found out recently that. Uh, this is at the University of Cambridge, and I'm going to do everything I can next time I'm there to try and see this. What I want to point out here is, if we wanted to understand what Newton had done, it would be really odd if someone, a historian who wanted to understand Newton's ideas and what Newton had done and why he was so important, who insisted that the only way to do that was to look for the notes in the margin. Where is Newton on this page? Newton is everywhere on this page, not just in the margins. There are the bits of this page that he's sent to the printer to lay down consistently and clearly, and then there are the bits that are in the margin, and they're all Newton. There aren't two things. There's not the stuff that the printer did and the stuff that Newton wrote. If we think of our universe as being a book written, there aren't the things that science explains and the bits that God does. If you want to find where God is in the universe, if you want to see God's handiwork, you do not go looking for the bits that science can't explain. They're just the bits we haven't worked out yet. The whole thing is his. I love this quote from uh, a famous scientist of about Einstein's time point, Kare, we should be astonished by nature's regularity. Men demand of their gods to prove their existence by miracles, but the eternal marvel is there are not miracles without cease. The world is divine because it is a harmony. Let me finish quickly by answering a question I get a bit. This is new. I didn't do this for anyone else. Uh, can a scientist believe in miracles? It's been raised there by Poincaré. Well, why couldn't they? Here's a famous, uh, actually, biologist from about 100 years ago, J.B.S. Haldane. He argued we couldn't. He says, my practice as a scientist is atheistic. That is to say, when I set up an experiment, I assume that no god, angel, or devil is going to interfere with its course. And this assumption has been justified by the success I've achieved in my professional career. I should therefore be intellectually dishonest if I were not also atheistic in the affairs of the world. What he is saying is that when the science goes into the lab, they assume that no god is sticking their finger in to ruin their results. It would be very odd then, he thinks, to walk outside the lab and assume that God does a whole heap of stuff out there in the universe. I hope from what I've just said you can see what the problem is with this. He's assuming that there's this stuff that science explains and then there's the stuff that God does. The stuff that happened in the lab is the stuff that God does and does so regularly that we can understand it via mathematical patterns. 
the way that God runs this world is so consistent and so rational that we need the finest, the most elegant, the most powerful mathematics to describe it. Why would God run the universe like this? Well, I think we can glimpse one of the reasons. It's something we kind of take for granted. If we want to build a house or we want to build a bomb, we need to know how the universe is going to react. If we want to make that moral decision between one and the other, this decision here, am I going to build a house or am I going to build a bomb, I need to know these arrows, how the universe will react when I do that. We take this for granted, but all of our moral interactions with each other need something predictable in between us. If the universe were totally chaotic, if it didn't obey simple laws that we could understand, such as uh, bricks don't blow up and C4 usually does, then we wouldn't know this decision wouldn't be a moral decision, it would be basically random. Right? We could try and build a bomb and end up building a lovely shelter for some people. The rules of our universe then serve a greater purpose. This is the framework, I want to suggest, in which we can understand miracles. If there is a God, then God has the power to do things that don't follow His usual rules. But being God, He's generally thought things through. So we wouldn't expect God to bend His rules for no reason. Why would God do a miracle? He can, but why would He? Here's a suggestion. God would do a miracle if there is something about this universe that is temporary. In God's plan, this something's time is over, or at least is nearly over. There is something about our world which is going to change. Perhaps it will be easier to see this by way of contrast. I've been trying recently to understand Buddhism. Like the Christian, the Buddha sees evil and suffering in the world. The first, first noble truth of Buddhism is this. Life is suffering. How do we stop suffering? Well, the problem is that death is no help. Because of reincarnation, you just come back. What you need is nirvana. This is not heaven, this is not eternal bliss, it's eternal nothing. You escape by ceasing to exist. This is the great achievement of the Buddha himself. There is a story about Gautama Buddha that when he was born, he took seven steps to the north, it's awesome, and declared, this is the last birth. There is now no more coming to be. When the Buddha died, he did not reincarnate. That was his great achievement. Nirvana literally means to blow out, like blowing out a candle. It's not eternal life, it's eternal death. Non-existence is better than this endless suffering. I see between Buddhism and Christianity a fundamental difference in the answer to one question. Can this world be redeemed? Could it be worth it? Can the world be put to right? Can it be saved, not just compensated, but restored? The Buddha says, no, life is suffering. There will be no miracle. The Christian says, yes, and as evidence points to one grand miracle. The rest of this talk will quote so frequently from C.S. Lewis that I'm not even going to bother acknowledging it. You can safely assume, if you agree with something from here on in, that it's plagiarism. The promises of this rep restoration in Scripture are almost unbelievable. Isaiah, writing 700 years before Christ, pictures this restoration as a great banquet. Isaiah 25, in this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. 
What is it about this world that will change? Death. And why think that this will change? Because he has started already. I believe in the resurrection of Jesus, not as a plank played by Loki, the god of mischief, who enjoys messing with dead bodies in laboratories and laughs at us huddling together in the dark. Miracles are not arbitrary exceptions. The resurrection is the turning point of history. Picture, if you will, a diver stripping off outer garments, then flashing for a moment in the air and then down through the clear and the warm and the sunlit water into the pitch black, cold, freezing water and on into the mud and slime and then up again, his lungs almost bursting back into the clear and warm and sunlit water and then at last out into the sunshine holding in his hand the dripping thing he went down to get. This thing is human nature and associated with it all nature, a new universe. God has dived down to the bottom of creation and has come up, bringing the whole of redeemed nature with him. This is not one person escaping. This is God's stamp of his promise to make all things new. The resurrection is the exception that will become the rule. Christ has risen and so we will rise. If even death is no obstacle, then this world can be redeemed. The power that made this world will remake it. There's a book for sale out the back, and there are some other books around in the church that are free. I recommend both of them to you. Thank you. Uh, Luke, that's why we love you. Um, it's, uh, it's a journey of science that I was on the just fringes of hanging on to. It was great. I loved <laughs> it. And you left us with philosophy and you point us to hope. And tonight we want to kind of mix those things together. So I thank you, mate, for your efforts in pulling that together. Uh, I want to give you a moment to have a think. Um, we're going to take questions and we're really open to, I think, Luke, you're robust enough to take pretty much anything. You're all night. Um, so, so please feel free. We're going we're to take advantage of that. Um, I, I was reflecting that we talked about charges for electricity. Uh, that got to me thinking about South Australia. And then you said <laughs> we, we won the cosmic lottery. So I thought that was going to all work out perfectly. <laughs> um, I suspect some of you are listening more closely than that and uh, that you have particular questions. Um, I'm going to grab a microphone and uh, perhaps uh, someone would like to run it around for me. Is there someone from New Life? Thanks, Jeff. Um, who'd like to do that? Would someone like to raise their hand and um, get us underway with a question? Yep, up the back. As you, uh, as you uh, ask your question, can you say your name first and that will keep us personal, um, so that'd be great. Thanks, Per. Yeah, Peter Davies. Luke, uh, while you're in America, I believe you're, a lot of the time you spent was debating between Christians and atheists? I had one debate, yeah, and, and a lot of talking to people, yeah. Okay. What would be the dominant question you had from atheists? Oh, good question. Um, I, think, I think if... So, for Geraint, I have to say, the, the problem with the God explanation is that he sees it as a bit of a non-explanation. You've just passed the buck on to this, for him, totally mysterious thing that he doesn't understand. Um, if that's off the table, then you really need to understand this multiverse a bit better. And so trying to understand how it would work, if it's science, uh, is there any way that we can test it? I think there are a few ways we maybe can. 
So a lot of the questions were along those sorts of lines. Um, why, how, does this, how is this, this cosmic lottery supposed to work? That was probably the most, often, uh, most common question from them. Can I, can I ask a follow-up question there, Luke? Mm -hmm. So if we go down the multiverse approach, um, what's the practical significance of it in terms of the, the atheist obviously wants to think about living as well mm -hmm. as physics. Mm -hmm. So what, do, we, do we get any payoff at all thinking that we're a lucky chance of a, a billion potential universes? Do, do you know what I mean? Like, so what's, d does the rubber ever hit the road in your experience talking with atheists on the how do I live differently knowing I'm in a, in a multiverse? Yeah, how are you supposed to live as an atheist is kind of an interesting one anyway. One of the reasons why we, we both liked, after some back and forth, the title is that fortunate has two meanings. Does it mean lucky or does it mean blessed? Um, so uh, there are some odd things in the, if you make the universe big enough. It seems like if there are an infinite number of things out there, then what does it matter what your actions are, right? Because there's someone else who's a lot like you who will have done the other action anyway. Um, but, you know, uh, most atheists get get off their backside and try and be good anyway for what, whatever motivation they have for that. So, which is why, you know, society doesn't completely crumble. But um, I, I think there, there comes a point where if, 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 if an atheist thinks really hard about this, it's basically just a decision that they make. They, they can see that the world as they see it is, is roughly the way they would like it to stay, and that requires at least some of the moral precepts we have so far, and so they'd better obey those rather than just going totally off the rails. So that's an interesting uh, thing to sort of think through, especially be because the, the theist idea is that this, this universe has some good moral purpose, that's at the bottom. Mm, yeah, great. Someone else with a question, please? Uh, down the front here, and then I'll come over here. Thanks, Luke. Um, <laughs> um, I, forgive me if I don't word it properly, but um, uh, I've come across conversations about uh, having faith in the Christian faith in particular. As um, where well, you hear kind of like speakers like Neil deGrasse and say kind of say how uh, having that Christian faith uh, is affecting the scientific community and not really um, encouraging science. <clears throat> um, have you felt your like any? coming up against any um, pressure, like having your position in, in the work that you do as well? Not really, not personally, which is kind of good. Okay. It, generally, you can just sort of get on with it. I mean, there's, there's an awful lot of talk that, that supposedly being a faith head, which is Richard Dawkins' fantastic phrase, um, is supposed to affect you know, the way you do this, that, or the other, but there's almost no evidence of that. On, on top of that, the history of, of science really points against it. Um, if you look at the guys, the, the people who in sort of 15, 1600s, who really went after nature looking for the patterns that are under there, it was not obvious at all that the, the kind of mathematical patterns that we see now would be there. Right? So it's really guys, it, it, you know, Rene Descartes in the 1500s, 1600s, who went after that. So the very early scientists didn't really know what they were doing, and it's kind of funny. So one of the, the earliest scientists who pushed this, this scientific method, we've really got to be systematic, was a guy called uh, Francis Bacon. Uh, he died of pneumonia, which he caught while shoving snow inside of a dead chicken to see whether it would preserve its meat. Now, 
when you don't really know how the universe works, you're kind of trying everything, which is what that experiment shows. We don't do that today in the lab, because it doesn't really prove much. But the, the ones who go and do the hard work of actually looking at nature really hard to try and find out what is going on, Newton said that he stood on the shoulders of giants. If you ask them why they did that, why they thought there was a pattern there to discover, it's because they believed that, that nature was the creation of a good God. There would be a rational thing underneath the confusion of everyday life to discover because there's a God who thought it through. Almost to a person, they would all say that. So the fact that we have these patterns to start with, that fact that science is now sort of running on its own, it got its kick up, it's got its leg up from the idea that the universe is a rational place because it is the product of a rational creator. That's yeah, really helpful. So that, I've heard the turn of phrase, faith-seeking understanding is kind of the, the, pre, the prequel is, I figure that there's a rational guy behind it, so I'll look for rationality within it. Is that the idea? Yeah, basically. Um, so Descartes, so the, he famously tried to doubt everything that he could possibly doubt. There is a philosopher floating, floating around who I'm trying to get. I can't remember one. They correct me later. Tried to doubt everything he could. How can we know things about the world? How can we do this? He, he basically got back to we can understand the world we see around us be, because there is a good God. And if I do my bit, it's not going to be easy. I can't just walk out and read equations out of the stars. If I do my bit of working hard and thinking hard and, and not fooling myself and doing science properly, then I will discover the rationality that is there. Yeah, it's really good. Um, up the front here, Jess, I think you had your hand up. Thank you. Uh, Jess Luria. Um, just going back to, to uh, Geraint's uh, postulation that, you know, of the multiverse, doesn't that really beg the question? In which, in which way? Well, in the sense that why, why multiverses anyway? Oh, so in terms of, so there's two questions of whether it, why would there be a multiverse at all? Which, yeah, if, if you're a naturalist, there's no answer to those sorts of questions, right? You get to the blackboard and whatever's on the blackboard is, is it that thing exists? That's, that's all the explanation you ever get. There's also, um, there, are, there are deeper questions about the multiverse. It's not a sort of slam dunk. So uh, it could be the case that your multiverse just churns out all the dead universes. Why, why would there be any living universes in there at all? That might require even more fine tuning. That's not something to take for granted. And even in that, case. It might be the case that most of the life forms in that universe don't have any sort of morally meaningful life. They pop out of the chaos for about 20 seconds, look around and then dissolve back into nothing. Right? There's, there's an awful lot, of, there's a lot of ways to, root, to sort of mess up your multiverse that way. You get life and ob observers, but you don't get anything as meaningful as the, the existence we see around us. That's really interesting, Luke. The, the, the thing that you're, you're keeping on pushing us to do is to think hard about what's not here in our universe, a and actually, rather than just presuming that everything that we see around us must be, mm. to ask why must it be? Yeah. Um, and that's actually really hard for us, because of course it should be, because I'm here and I can think about it. But so, for instance, life forms that exist for 20 seconds and collapse back into nothingness is a possibility. It just doesn't occur to me when I first think about potential universes. It, they have green skin and big eyes and egg heads <laughs> and they fly around in saucers, you know? Yeah. But, but to, to think that the other possibilities are any, they're, they're chaotically arranged in any possible way doesn't naturally lead us to have a conversation like this. 
Yeah, so this is actually not just a, a, a random sci-fi thought. There are multiverses in which that's the most common form of life. This is called the Boltzmann brain problem, after a guy called Boltzmann. And good luck in the book if you want to go and read that bit. Um, but yeah, basically, if if that's the most common form of life throughout the multiverse, then it doesn't seem to have explained the world we see. That's helpful. Now, look, we're we're in a we're in a church. I'm very comfortable. There'll be some people here tonight who come along to go. I'd like to hear what this astrophysicist has got to say, and uh, maybe even you might want to poke him with a stick. And so I'm happy, we're going to take another question from someone I know is from my church, um, but I'm really happy to hear uh, from people who are here tonight and just want to say, hey, look, I really want to push you on X, Y, and Z. So the next question, please feel free to do that. Um, but you go, Russell, and then I'll come here. Uh, Russell, um, does that mean that um, this is the only planet with life? Ooh, million-dollar question. Uh, scientifically, we don't know. Uh, that's the short story, yeah. Um, and next question. No, yeah. <laughs> so here's, here's the problem. I can, I can pass the buck on this one quite easily. If, uh, if you would like to know scientifically whether there is life elsewhere in the universe, what you would like to say is, all right, how many stars are there in the universe? We roughly know that. It's a big number. Uh, how many planets are there roughly per star? Probably about one-ish. Um, not that you get half a planet, but on average. Um, how many of those planets will be, will have the right conditions that life could possibly form? You know, throw out the ones that are too close and all that, okay. We've got a bit of a handle on that. Um, if you set up a planet with all those conditions, what's the probability that life will actually form? That's a problem that you need to go and ask a biologist, and the biologists don't know, right? All the astronomy, we've got that. Okay, we've done the hard work. It's a biologist who are letting the team do. It's a much more difficult question. All right. Okay. Um, you would then like to know, you know, will, will life develop in all of the rest of that story? So, is there life elsewhere in the universe? The problem is we just don't know that bit. It could be that there are, you know, uh, a billion billion planets out there that could harbour life, but because life's so hard to form, none of them have life on it except this one. So, sort of. Scientifically, it's, it's unfortunate, but there's, there's a great big question mark over that question um, un, until we knew more about what happens to chemicals to make them into life. So, so Luke, when we see a headline in the news like we did a couple of weeks ago, which talks about finding seven planets in the Goldilocks zone around uh, some star that's you know, 5,000 light years away or something, yeah. um, we shouldn't immediately go, brilliant, there's a Goldilocks zone, ipso facto, these, this should have life on them. Yeah, we're, we're just saying we don't we, we don't know. It could be the case, but because we don't know the mechanism in scientific terms, yeah, we don't know. Yeah, basically, um, there's a, another problem with those planets. Just to turn it up for a second, they're all what's called tidally locked. So uh, the same face of the moon face always faces the Earth. So that it's it's not the the dark side of the moon. Sorry, Pink Floyd fans. The far side of the moon, the near side of the moon, right? Um, these planets are tidally locked to their star, so the same side of the planet always faces the star. Right? So one side is perpetually day, the other side perpetually night, and that's it. Now, that seems to be a not very nice situation if you want to have life. Maybe you can find a nice sort of uh, sun on one side and dark on the other side around the edge of each planet, but uh, there are a whole heap of issues there even you know astronomically that we we need to know to, to, to even know whether it could have life 
and then the biologist still won't tell us where it will. Everyone satisfied with that answer? Fantastic. Um, another question, please. Yep. Hi, my name is George, and um, as a chemist, my mathematics stopped at electrons. <laughs> um, time, as a scalar, you mentioned mass, you mentioned um, a multitude of other things. Time, as a scalar, or as a floating dimension? Yeah. If you took that into account and, and you applied it to your Big Bang Theory, would it still fit into your vision of what the Big Bang Theory in the Bible set out in Genesis? Oh, okay. Um, so there's a couple of questions there. One is, uh, so we all experience time as kind of flowing forwards. There's this very intuitive idea about what time is. So that's one of those things where the harder you think about it, the more confusing it gets. There's this wonderful quote from St. Augustine who says, uh, as long as no one asks me, I know exactly what time is. As soon as someone asks me, I have no idea. I'm in exactly that situation. Um, uh, the other part of that question there was basically how do you interpret Genesis? Uh, so let me solve this once and for all. Um, That's supposed to be a cue for laughter. Luke and I had discussed it before. No, I'm going to nail this. We've got this, come on. Um, there's a whole heap of views. I'm just going to punt to that, right? There's a, there's a thousand ways of, of reading those early chapters. Even going back to, you know, I just mentioned Augustine. He's at 400 AD. And even he has some pretty weird ideas about <laughs> what's going on in Genesis. Um, I personally don't find any particular need to read any, any particular timeline or order of events off that. I think the lessons of Genesis are primarily theological. Um, and they show up especially nicely if you read it relative to, to the sort of comparative literature, literature amongst the, the nations around Israel at that time. So all of those tell great stories about fighting gods, right? You could make a movie about those stories. No one will ever make a good movie about Genesis chapter 1 because there's no bad guy. There's no antagonist. There's, nothing, there's, there's no tension, right? Just, I'll have some stars, there's some stars, right? That, I think, is the major sort of theological lesson there, that, that there is a creator who is very different from his creation. There's, there's a complete separation there. God doesn't fight against matter to, do, to, to make it do what he wants. Do you want to follow up? Yeah, um, it's more along the lines of, um, I love these atheist sites, and I have a lot of fun with those. <laughs> and I was just wondering about, because they often quote the Big Bang Theory, it just appeared, and they quote on timelines. And I'm just wondering, like, if you read where God said, well, I'm going to make some stars, and I'm going to put some of this in, we're going to put that in, this is going to happen here. In your opinion, does it line up with the Big Bang Theory? No, I, d I don't think it does, and I don't think we would expect it to. I don't think that's the point of Genesis. That's, that's what I'm that saying. That was one of the arguments so, that I've been having. So, yeah. So, I mean, but other people do, and there's various ways of trying to, you know, guys like Hugh Ross think that it, it lines up perfectly somehow. Um, so, again, there's a thousand different views on that. Uh, it's important to remember that, that a lot, you know, if there was a book out there that we, we'd lost the first chapter to, and then suddenly someone found the first chapter, and I think, great, now we don't need the author. No, that doesn't follow, right? We know the story of the universe. If someone writes a new first chapter to it, if science discovers something new about how the universe started, it won't replace the author, right? There's, <laughs> they're just completely different explanations, right? You cannot replace J.K. Rowling with Harry Potter or Dr. Zeus with the cat in the hat, depending on your level. Um, <laughs> 
I had to choose there between down or I could go Hamlet with Shakespeare and I don't know, you can decide for yourself which one of those you want to go with. It's Wednesday night, we'll go with Cat in the Hat. Yeah. Um, has someone else got a question for Luke? I'll come here next. Hey Luke, my name's Glenn. <laughs> First time read, a long time fan. <laughs> um, I wrote this down so I was a bit more eloquent when it came out. I, I recently finished reading your book, which I really enjoyed. Um, I particularly found intriguing the idea that there's this mystery and beauty that undergirds all of creation. And it's not that just that it's underneath everything or on top of, but that it's all beautiful. And for me, I really found that intriguing. Um, as a Christian, you naturally, or unnaturally, seem to draw a lot of conclusions that there's this godly divine presence that is through everything, rather than there's just God at the beginning, God outside of everything. Um, and for a long time, we've heard the argument of the church that since X cannot be proven, then God only exists as an answer to tie off loose ends, which you've talked about again tonight. Um, the church and science have long been at odds with each other. And when I read books like The Fortunate Universe, it solidifies the idea that these two can coexist. Um, as a designer, I love the idea of evolution and the fact that there's this extra dimension of in the design framework that sits independent from time and space and it, it encourages biodiversity and uniqueness. Um, but it's not a concept that typically the church embraces. And we see the same discord a lot throughout society, some of it rightly, some of it wrongly. Um, especially when there's very left and very right scientists like Dawkins and Ken Ham, who seem to both contribute to widening the gap. So my question is, do you see the future of science and church walking the same path? And how does fine-tuning help this discord? That's a big question, wasn't it? Yeah. I was going to say, well yeah. done. You got to the question, Glenn. Nice. That's no, good. that's thanks, fine. Thanks, mate. No, thank uh, you. Yeah, so there's a, few, there's a few things there. One of the things I want to pick up on straight away was uh, what's called the conflict hypothesis or the conflict thesis, the idea that the history of science and religion has by and large been conflict over the history of those things. That idea has been systematically picked apart by historians over the last half a, half a century. And that is, that is no longer the dominant position about how science and religion have interacted over their entire history. Right? The, the, e even, even into the middle of the 1800s, right? And where, so the start of the scientific revolution is usually thought to be Copernicus, 1540, 1543, right? He publishes his book. That's usually a, a, a ranking book. Even into the middle of the, the 18th century, the premier scientific organisation in the world was the Royal Society in England. Of the first, it's some statistic like this, of the first 43 presidents of the society, 42 were parsons. They were just ministers, right? The, the, the parson naturalist who you preached on Sunday and used his, his weekdays to do science, right? A wonderful career idea. Um, um, we could do a sort of mutual uh, apprenticeship. Um, right? The fact that to a person, it's not just that the early, that the makers of the scientific revolution were theists. It's that they did it because they were theists. And if you ask them why they study nature, it's because there is something there to discover, that discovery is good, and we believe that there's rational ideas under it, 
because we believe that there's a God, right? There are some major points at which they do conflict, of course, right? Galileo was a major stuff-up, to put it mildly. Um, and, and the reception of Darwin's another one, but even that isn't the sort of the massive kerfuffle it's usually made up to be. In light of that, I think there's an awful lot of sort of propaganda we get these days trying to paste over that history and so that they've always been in conflict. In fact, we can trace the names of the people who tried to do that. Andrew Dixon White published a book in the, at the end of the 1800s, and you can basically trace the entire conflict thesis to that, to that, and him and one other person, and modern historians look at that as, as garbage history. There are just made-up quote after made-up quote, made-up story after made-up story throughout that whole thing. So it's, it's a myth that there, that there has been a conflict over all of that time, but there are unfortunately, it's not just the atheists pushing that, it's, it's coming from this side as well. If you've got the idea that the way that you find God in the world is where science has failed to explain something, you need to suddenly attack all the science you can, which is a really stupid idea, right? There is a way the world works, and if we watch it hard enough, we'll work out that way. Ta-da, science, right? Now, it's not to say that people don't use science for bad ends, but, um, you know, ultimately, trying to work out the way that God runs the universe is not, the, is, is not any kind of evil process. And if we keep pushing the idea that that it's us and them, that these two circles, the thing that God explains and then the things that science explains, then it'll be an us and them. I'm really sick of Christians referring to scientists as them, right? You can see why that would annoy me. Um, doesn't happen here, but it, I, yeah, I'll get over that one day, maybe. So I think there is, there's, re there's reason to think an awful lot harder than we have about this. You know, just the just the automatic, if I can kick something about evolution, then I've scored one point for the good guys, right? I think we've got to get past that way of viewing. We can have a perfectly reasonable conversation about whether evolution is true or not. But, but you don't want to send the message that if it turns out to be true, then the atheists have won, right? Dawkins said that, that what Darwin did was made it, made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. Bollocks, right? If, <laughs> right? He wrote a book called... That's my the, quote the, of the night, by the way. Thank you. He wrote a book called The, the Blind Watchmaker, right? Which basically makes the argument that, that, you know, the entire universe is a life factory. Well, how about that, right? If you, if you find a watch on the ground and you think that that's designed, then what are you going to think about a watch factory? If it is the case that the entire universe has pumped out life, yeah, how about that? It's done that by turning a very orderly state at the beginning into a, in, as, into a disordered state and on the way done some pretty interesting stuff. The point of fine-tuning, I think, is, is that it brings us, one of the advantages of it is it brings us to that, that blackboard, Alberta's blackboard. We can just stare at, let, let science do everything it wants to do. Let's write down that law, what next? Will the atheists have won? Will they stand there going, yes, we've explained everything? Or will there be a huge open question of why these laws are not others, why laws that permit life rather than others? That's really helpful. Can I, can I ask everyone to just note uh, what Luke said there? He's making a very strong case to say that that, that antagonism isn't the history. Uh, if you take nothing else home tonight, that is a very, very important point. Um, Luke, are there ways that we can follow that up for ourselves to kind of check it out and go, hey, Luke said some really cool stuff tonight, but... Where do I find that argument somewhere else? Um, 
there's a book called Galileo Goes to Jail and Other Myths About Science and Religion, which is a whole heap of historians. So each historian does a separate chapter, just, just taking all of these myths apart and, and nailing them. There's a follow-up called uh, something like Newton's Apple, which is the same sort of idea. Uh, basically, historians these, these days... So the, the most annoying thing you, <laughs> that uh, these historians have to deal with is the idea that people in the Middle Ages thought the Earth was flat. No, they didn't, right? There isn't one of them, right? The most you get is one guy at like 500 AD, right? And that's it. Everyone else knew the Earth was round. The ancient Egyptians not only knew it was round, but had worked out a way of measuring its radius using shadows from the sun, right? But that's put forward, that's part of the, 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 the they were all idiots back then, mentality, and you can just sort of push that through into, you know, the origins of anything that happened back then, including Christianity. So you don't want to write off all of that, and so that's what that mythology is trying to do. So, um, yeah, the book has, a, our book has a little bit of it, but there's some very good stuff out there. Fantastic. Uh, great to chase up. There was, I'll probably take two more questions, and I think we're probably done. Uh, come, oh, is, is there, oh, over here, yep, and then we'll come over here. Yeah, Ian Watson, and just building on Peter's question about the questions you get from atheists, conversely, what are the statements you hear from Christians that make you cringe and, <laughs> and make us no good and do a disservice to the gospel in trying to articulate something that, yeah, isn't honouring God and is contradictory and, yeah, what are your cringe moments from, from believers? I find a lot, of the, the, a lot of the questions I got were good. One of them was, is, um, is the multiverse consistent with theism? And depending on how you read Genesis, I think, yeah, that might just be the easiest way. You know, if God wants to make a multiverse, then fine. Um, the stuff, it's the us and them mentality, which, which puts me inside in one criteria and outside in another, which, which kind of gets to me. There's the autom automatic that if I'm kicking science, then I'm doing something good for God. Right? I mean, e even the fact that there's... You know, they're, they're just basically, like, science is difficult sometimes, right? I don't have to tell people about that, that, yeah, it's all equations and stuff. Um, there, are, there are unsolved problems, so if you think that an unsolved problem is a great way to, place to stick God in, then you've got a problem if they then solve that problem. This is called the God of the Gaps fallacy. Yep. But more than that, you should be able to see God in more things. I'm going to quote C.S. Lewis again. There's a wonderful bit of his in his book, Miracles, where he says that... Um, oh, I wish I had this exactly. I probably could get it. Anyway, um, God made the vine and made it to grow grapes and made those grapes with certain properties that if you crush them and leave them out, they will ferment and form a drink. So from Noah's time until ours, God has been turning water into wine. At a wedding in Cana, he once took the mask off and did it a bit quicker so that... If, if the way the natural world is was kind of written in letters too large for people to see, he did it on a smaller scale. But it will only have half its effect if you look at Jesus and conclude that here is that creator. It will have the other half of its effect if you look at wine and see they're the same miracle that you would have seen at, at Cana that day. If you can look at every glass of wine as being God turned water into wine for me then you will see all of nature in that way. There won't be the, the stuff science explains and the stuff God does. It'll be all the stuff that God does. It's great. 
I kind of want to say have a glass of wine and go home, but we'll take one more question uh, and then we'll finish up. Uh, my question is not so much to do with uh, historians and that, but my frustration is actually with modern day uh, media. Mm -hmm. Everywhere you look at media, it's actually create, uh, evolution and evolution and evolution. Yeah, the Attenborough um, um, series, um, whatever you call it. Modern media seems to be pushing this whole concept that science it's all about uh, that all things, you know, uh, have come about because of evolution. They seem to push in that line so much. And uh, as, as uh, whether I want to kick it or not, I, I stand or I sit uh, watching this, and this is actually coming at, uh, at me, and it's coming at everybody mm -hmm. that watches the media, which means that um, much as you want to say, hey, the historian's got it right, modern technology seems to me, and, and the media in particular, has got it so wrong, and yet it's so influential. How do we Christians struggle with that? And how do we, um, have you got any ways in which we can actually say, hang on a second, let's question the media. Well, we can do that. It's just not, be done, not been done sufficiently yeah. enough to sort of, you know, counter the weight. How do we, at home or wherever we are, do something about that? It, yeah, the media is not something that I've fully cracked. <laughs> <laughs> We've been trying to promote this book, and it's a complete mystery. Anyway, um, uh, how do you change a, a sort of a cultural narrative that's that deep? It's very difficult. Part of the reason it's difficult is because you'll get a lot more people turning up to a debate if it's really you know, one side banging heads against the other one, right? If you can, if you turn up, you know, Bill Nye, the science guy debates me about evolution and he presents the evidence for that and I go, yeah, fine, right? You'd rather get Ken Ham to turn up there and who's gonna you know, rain fire and brimstone and get, they'll get more views. So it, it, it's hard, but I think um, a lot of that is changing. I think, uh, I think just more um, educated lay people is always useful on a lot of different areas. Um, but I think uh, just a basic understanding, if you can see God in, in nature and not just in miracles, then, you, then however nature works is what God has done. And then there's no, there's no instant celebration whenever, you, whenever someone points out that science doesn't currently know how something happens or that it does, or, you know, atheists going, we've worked out how it all works, right? Let science do what it does stare at that blackboard for a while and ponder the deeper reasons why people have been believing in God for <laughs> thousands of years to start with. So, yeah, how, how, what our media strategy is, is, is I'd love to get someone else's views on that, but I think the, the basic outlines of, of uh, an appreciation for what science is in a theistic worldview, what is science is if you're a Christian, is, is a good place to start. That's great. Thanks, Luke. Um, can we agree that we've had an enjoyable evening? I think it's, uh, I think it's been great. Can we thank Dr. Luke? Thank you. Thank you for coming. Um, it's, uh, it's actually very encouraging for me to, to have Luke here. We, 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 um, we know Luke in a whole variety of different contexts. It's great to see you in your context, uh, which is pulling these two things together. You're a, a human who does walk these two things together uh, in flesh and blood. Um, in a family on the cricket pitch and, and, and in the University of Sydney and we're thankful for the time that you spent tonight. Um, there is a book up the back uh, yep. that you'll go and, I assume, sell and talk to people. Yep. That's great. 
Um, if we want to find out more about you, do you have a blog somewhere, somewhere we can follow you up, Luke? Uh, yeah, lukebarnes.info is my website. Lukebarnes.info, that's pretty handy. Um, and uh, yeah, we can keep track of you there and, and follow things through. And you're happy to chat with people after? Yeah, yeah, I'll be uh, at the book table hawking my product. That's great. Trying to get people as they go past from <laughs> eating food. We'll yeah. close the other door and, uh, and do that. What, what, <laughs> um, what we want to do is encourage you, if you want to hang around, um, there's supper um, out in the foyer there. Um, Luke will be out in the foyer, that'll be great. Um, I am really grateful to be able to host tonight. Uh, we want to say as a church that we're not afraid of science and we want to do exactly what you're saying, Luke, <laughs> maybe even in person tonight, um, putting, putting science and, and, and theology together and say God is on every page. Uh, so we want to thank you so much for coming tonight and I uh, would love to let you uh, thank Dr. Luke again and see you out there for supper. Thank you.